Acts 11, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word, we need your help. We need your help. I need your help to speak clearly and speak accurately. We all need your help to hear what you have to say to us. This is your word. Uh, It's not just that we're trying to find your word in here or your words in here. What I just read, it is your word. And you have something for us today, something powerful to change our lives. Your word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we want to be impacted and changed by your word today. So we come with open hearts and open ears and pray that you would speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a Christian? Um, sounds like a silly question, right? We are. Uh, well, there's, there's over almost 2 billion people in the world that, that would profess to be Christians. And depending on who you ask, you're going to get a wide range of answers. So what is a Christian? Some would say that they are a Christian because they were born into a, quote, Christian family, and that makes them a Christian. Others would say they're a Christian because they attend church with some kind of regularity. And for some, maybe regularly means I regularly attend church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Others would call themselves a Christian because they are a part of a certain denomination or a certain stripe within the broader Christian faith. It's not uncommon to run into someone and say, are are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Methodist, or a Lutheran, or a Baptist. So yes, of course. Still for others, they would say they're a Christian because of a certain experience they had. They were baptized, maybe as a baby, or, or even as an adult, or they prayed a certain prayer called the sinner's prayer. Or they were at an evangelistic meeting and responded and walked an aisle and came up to the altar and, and prayed the sinner's prayer. 
Or, you know, we've been going through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Some would say that the mark of a Christian is that you speak in tongues. You speak in tongues, you're a Christian. Well, in this story, in Acts chapter 11, we are gonna, we're going to actually see the first group of people ever called Christians. That's what it says. It says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. This group of people. And the way that this passage describes them coming to faith and describes their lives and what the word Christian means biblically is going to help us understand how we should use this word and how we should define what a Christian is as well. Back in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death. He was falsely accused of things and was chased out of Jerusalem and stoned. And after that, there was a great persecution that arose against the Christian church. And in Acts chapter 8, it says that the believers, or many of them anyways, except the apostles, but many of the believers scattered outside of Jerusalem. Philip went to Samaria, which was not very far from Jerusalem, and preached the gospel. And others went to different places. Now, of those scattered, they preached only, most of them preached only to Jewish people. They thought this was a message only for the Jews. But there was a group of people, a group of these disciples, who made their way all the way up to Antioch and began preaching to a group of people called Hellenists, or Greeks, or Greek-speaking non-Jews. Now, when, in this story, we see the genius of God in his strategic plant, uh, planting of this church in Antioch. It's amazing. Antioch is a church or is a city about 300 miles away from Jerusalem. And it is a very important city in the first century, this, about this time. It was important for at least three reasons. It was important politically because it was probably the third most prominent city in all of the Roman Empire behind only Rome and Alexandria. So it's a very, very powerful city politically. It was also important um, ethnically. It was kind of like this melting pot. America's called a melting pot, right? People from Europe and Asia and Africa, all these people come and they kind of blend in here. They kind of melt here together. Well, that's what Antioch was like. It was kind of a melting pot of diverse people from different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, one Jewish scholar near the end of the first century said that there were probably 25,000 Jewish people in Antioch. No doubt there were many Greeks, right? Those were the Hellenists, the people that, that uh, these disciples began sharing the gospel with. There also were, were Romans, Roman citizens or, or ethnic Rome, Roman uh, people. Uh, this city was conquered by one of Alexander the Great's generals. So no doubt there are many Romans. And this was a prominent city in ancient Syria. So there were lots of Arabs there as well. So this is a very, very unique city. It was very cosmopolitan, you might say. A melting pot of different people. And it was also important commercially. It was a very wealthy city. Much of the, the riches from the east would flow through Antioch on its way to Rome. So this is a city that had vast wealth. In addition to being a very important city, it was a very, very wicked city. Very evil. Lots of, lots of things that we would say are not good, right? There was lots of massive sexual immorality in the city, and it spread to much, many other parts of the Roman Empire. It was interesting. 
You know, when I think of the Roman Empire, I don't think of like this morally upright empire. But I think they, they did have higher standards at one time. One, poet, one Roman poet said that, that Antioch was responsible. And whether or not they were, who knows. But they were responsible for the moral decline of the Roman Empire. Who knows? So this was a very, very unique city. In addition to being an important city, like I said, it was a morally corrupt city. It was rampant with sexual immorality. This is just the kind of city that God wants to invade, right, with the gospel. That's what he does. So these believers that were scattered from Jerusalem, they made their way all the way to Antioch, to this wealthy, prominent, and morally corrupt city, and they had one thing in mind, one thing only. It wasn't to gain political influence or power. It wasn't to get rich. It was to spread the gospel. That was the one thing they were focused on. No doubt they probably moved into houses and started businesses, but their main focus was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that in verse 20. They preached the Lord Jesus. The gospel invades this city with amazing results. In fact, Luke uses this phrase that I think I had a hard time getting off this. In fact, about Thursday, I was, I was thinking I was going to go with this phrase as the main point, and then I switched gears. But anyways, this amazing phrase, verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them. These believers came to Antioch, they preached Jesus, and it says the hand of the Lord was with them. Now that's a phrase or, or a variant of that phrase is used throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It's everywhere. It's a, it's a very important idea or theme in the Bible. I wouldn't say it's a central theme, but it's a very important one. What does it mean? Of course, God doesn't have a hand, does he? I mean, God is spirit, so he doesn't embody, he doesn't, he's not embody, he doesn't have a physical hand, but it's a metaphor and it's meant to communicate something about God. The idea of God's hand is common in the Bible. It signifies his action and his power or his strength for a task. The hand of God is God's mighty power by which he reaches and works wonders. And we see that in the city of Antioch. The hand of the Lord was on them and God was doing extraordinary things there. This is used throughout the Bible, like I said. For instance, in Exodus chapter 13, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he describes how God brought them out of Egypt and he says this, with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. I love the way Ezra describes how God gave him strength and courage for the task he was given. In Ezra chapter 7, it says, for the good hand of the Lord my God was on me. David in Psalm chapter 20 describes how God will save or deliver his anointed king, which happened to be David. And he said this, he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. If you've ever experienced God's deliverance or salvation or rescue from a challenging difficulty, you can say the same thing. He rescued me with his strong right hand. And of course, in Acts chapter 4, 
We've come back to this verse many times in Acts. When Peter and John were released from being in the presence of the Jewish religious leaders and warned, do not preach Jesus anymore, they went to their friends and they began to pray. And it was such a prayer that God, God loved this prayer and the place started shaking when they were done. And here's how their prayer ended. Grant to your servants to continue, continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and do signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I have heard people say some things like, I don't want the hand of God. I just want his face. I think I probably have said that before. It sounds so good, doesn't it? If the Bible says, talks about the hand of the Lord, then I want his face, which, which points us to God's divine favor and fellowship, right? His, his face shines upon us. He smiles upon us in Christ. I want his face, no doubt, but I also want his hand. I want both. And we should want both. We must seek his face, but we must also seek his hand. I, I would love for the testimony of one of the testimonies of my life to be that, that the hand of the Lord was on him or the testimony of this church that the hand of the Lord was on us. The result of the hand of the Lord being with this group of disciples who made their way to Antioch was that a great many people came to faith in Christ. The greatest miracles on planet earth were happening to many, many people. Many people were going from death to life, from darkness to light. The hand of the Lord was on them. Later in Acts 13, we're going to see that this church is so dynamic that it becomes the first missionary sending church in the New Testament. They send out Paul and Barnabas. Well, many are believing in the Lord and word gets back to Jerusalem. And isn't that how it always works? Whenever something big is happening, word gets out. Now we have lots of ways for the word to get out today. We can send a letter in the mail, which is old school, right? What do they call that? Snail mail now, right? That's old school. We got social media. We got television. We got all kinds of ways to get the word out. Well, back then for the word to get out was to send someone to walk or ride a donkey, But what was happening in Antioch was so big that someone or a group of people from Antioch made their way back to Jerusalem to let the church know what was happening. Now, we don't know if it was positive or negative. It could have been that these people in Antioch, perhaps Jewish believers, said they're sharing the gospel with Gentiles. This can't be good. We better go tell Peter and John. Or it could have been good news. Or it could have just been a mixed bag. We don't know exactly if this is good or bad. It just seems like it's big. But they made their way back to Jerusalem to tell the church what was going on. And when word got back to Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas. They sent a man named Barnabas. Now, I scratch my head and I'm thinking, why Barnabas instead of Peter, John, maybe Peter and John, like like when they were sent to Samaria, when they heard what was going on there, but they sent Barnabas. We don't know why they sent Barnabas for sure, but the way that Barnabas is described in these verses ought to make every one of us jealous to be described in the same way. 
And I think it gives us a clue as to why they sent Barnabas. They could have sent somebody else, perhaps, but they sent Barnabas. Verse 24 describes Barnabas this way. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What made him good, he wasn't good in himself, but what made him good was that he was a man full of the Spirit. He was a man full of faith in Christ. Don't you want to be described that way? Isn't there something in every genuinely born-again Christian that says, I want to be a man, a woman, a young man, a young woman, an old man, an old woman, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Well, I think these are Barnabas's credentials and they seem good enough for me. These were his credentials. This is why Barnabas is sent. And Barnabas comes to Antioch. And when he comes to Antioch, here's what it says. Here's, here, this was his experience. He came to Antioch. He came to these believers who had now believed in Jesus. And it says this, he saw the grace of God. He saw God's grace. This was a legitimate work of God's spirit. This was, these were not professing believers only. These were not Christians in name only. He saw the grace of God. We don't know exactly We don't know the particulars of what he experienced or what he saw. We might see a little bit of that later in the passage, what part of what he saw. We don't know a lot of particulars, but it's described as the grace of God. And how could it be described any, any other way? The gospel is the gospel of God's grace through Jesus. And when it invades our lives, the results are, the, the evident results are the grace of God. Barnabas saw the grace of God here among these believers. He saw the effects of the gospel on their lives. The gospel had taken root in the lives of these uh, disciples in Antioch, and it was very clear to Barnabas. It was not like, well, they call themselves Christians, but I don't know. They're kind of rude and unforgiving and no, he saw the grace of God. Barnabas witnessed the fruit of the spirit. Their profession of faith in Christ, you might say was consistent. It matched up with how they actually lived. I got to ask the question. I asked this question of myself and I ask it of you. If Barnabas or Paul or your neighbor came into your home and lived with you for a week or a month. Would they see the grace of God? Not not perfection, but would they see God's grace? Would they see the graces of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Would they see the grace of Forgiveness and overlooking offenses, would they see the grace of these things? Or would they have to look really hard for some evidence of grace? Would they both hear your profession of faith in Christ and also see the fruit of your profession of faith in Christ through your life? 
Well, Barnabas, that's, that was his experience in Antioch. And may it be in ours as well. May it, be, may, may it be our experience in our own homes that there is grace abounding in our homes, not just toward us from God. Absolutely that. We can't live without that. But may there be grace abounding toward us because we fall short, because we need his righteousness and grace every day. But may there be evident grace in our lives with the way that we interact with our spouse and our, chil- spouse and our children and our neighbors, the way that we handle difficulty and so forth. Well, Barnabas loves what he sees in the church at Antioch. He loves what he sees. It says he saw the grace of God, verse 23. Then it says this, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Now, I got to say, the word glad sounds like somewhat of a tame word, somewhat anticlimactic. (laughs) I mean, it just does. The word glad comes from the the Greek word kairo, which means to rejoice exceedingly. When Barnabas saw the grace of God, he rejoiced exceedingly. He loved what he saw, and it made him very, very happy. He was glad. And then he encourages these believers. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. We get that at the end of Acts chapter 4 when he, when he, among others, comes and lays the proceeds of the sale of a piece of land at the feet of the apostles. It says that Barnabas, son of Joseph, his name meant son of encouragement. So he was an encourager. That was in his name. And he not only saw the grace of God, not only rejoiced exceedingly, but then he wanted to encourage these believers. And, and he did. He encouraged them. Verse 23, Barnabas encourages the church to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It says, be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Reed told me he loves the way the New American Standard puts this verse, and so I looked it up, and, and I do too. I'm going to share it with you. Here's the way New American Standard puts verse 23. It says, he rejoiced, Barnabas rejoiced, and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to God or true to the Lord. With resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. Isn't that the kind of encouragement all of us need? I mean, maybe every day. No matter how good yesterday was, when I get up this morning or tomorrow morning, I need this kind of encouragement. With resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. To be resolute means, or have a resolute heart means to have a consecrated heart, a heart set apart for God. To remain true means that you are true now, but remain true, remain faithful to the Lord. How many people seem to start the Christian life but don't finish? You know people, you know at least one person, I'm willing to bet. That it seemed like they started so well, and now you're like, it doesn't, they don't even bear any semblance of trusting in Christ at all. I know too many people. Jesus said it would, it would be this way. The parable of the sower, the first parable Jesus ever told, is the parable of the sower and the seed. And he said, you know, there was seed sown. There's two in particular I want to focus on. There was seed sown among in shallow soil. And immediately the, the, the seed bore fruit and this plant sprung up really quick. 
But when the sun came out, the sun was hot, there was shallow soil, there wasn't much root, and it scorched the plant and killed it. And he said that represents when persecution comes and difficulty comes, the one who initially believed and was so excited falls away. And then there's the seed that was sown among the thorns and the weeds. And it began to grow, but the thorns and weeds began to choke it out and it couldn't bear fruit. And the thorns and weeds represent the desire to be rich and the love of this world and getting caught up in the things of this world. And it chokes out the life of the word. So many Christians seem to start well, professing Christians seem to start well and then don't finish. I couldn't help but think of Demas. Demas was a co-worker of Paul. Paul. Imagine if you were a co-worker of Paul and you were with Paul in some of his missionary journeys. I mean, that would seem like that would be, that would be the thing, that would keep you tied to Jesus, wouldn't it? Seems like it would. If you were with Paul and, and saw him preach and saw the effects of his ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit, be like, I'm good forever. Demas was a, was a co-worker of Paul, yet the last thing that's said about Demas, right before, shortly before Paul dies, is Demas, in love with this world, has deserted me. Barnabas had been a follower of Jesus for some time now, and he knows the challenges these believers are going to face. And so he says, with resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. Especially in a town, a city like Antioch, where the deadly temptations may not be obvious and at the end of a sword, like, right, like, deny Jesus or you're going to die. But the challenges and temptations may come wrapped in sugar, coated in sugar and wrapped as a present, a beautiful gift. Temptations of wealth and prestige and power and comfort and sexual pleasure. The kinds of temptations, quite frankly, that we face in our culture. So Barnabas encourages these believers, and we need this encouragement, with resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. And I say that to you this morning. With resolute heart. Now, you don't have to question whether or not this is God's word because I'm just quoting the verse. With resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. Well, through Barnabas' ministry, even more people come to faith. It says in verse 24, And what Barnabas does next is, I find, so helpful. Barnabas doesn't say, this church is in good shape. Man, I see the grace of God. I am excited about that. I've given them a little pep talk, encouragement. Now it's time for me to go back to Jerusalem. He sees that many people are coming to faith in Christ. And he says, because all these people are coming to faith in Christ, I need to go find Paul. Well, Saul. I'm going to call him Paul, though, okay? Became Paul later. I'm gonna, I need to go find Paul in Tarsus. And that's what he does. Many people coming to faith in Christ. And Barnabas says, I need to go find Paul. And what they do is he brings Paul back and they begin to teach for one whole year. 
They teach all these people that are coming to faith in Christ. I can't imagine. I'm sure that was a very intensive theological, doctrinal training for these people. It's amazing. They needed teaching. They needed teaching. Paul was an extraordinarily gifted teacher. And so Barnabas says, I need to go find Paul. Bring him here to teach these people. Now remember, at, the, at that time, all they had, would have had was the Old Testament. But Paul saw Christ all throughout the Old Testament. So he taught them many things. And at the end of verse 26, as a result of the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, it says this, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. These people came to faith in Christ. Barnabas saw the grace of God in their lives. Barnabas encouraged them to remain faithful. They sat under the teaching of Paul and Barnabas for one whole year. And it says they were first called Christians in Antioch. So I asked at the beginning, and I'm going to ask again, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? The word literally means a Christ one. One who belongs to Christ. Or we might say more modern vernacular, a Jesus man. Or a Jesus woman. Or a Jesus person. Reminds me of like the Jesus people movement of the 60s and 70s. They were Jesus They were called Jesus people. That's what a Christian is. It is a Jesus person. It is a Christ one. It is one who belongs to Christ. Now, some have suggested that for these believers in Antioch and in the early centuries of the church to be called Christians was derogatory, a derogatory name. And and I suppose it could have been used that way at times. But to me, it seems more likely that this was just the way that the pagan unbelievers described these followers of Christ. They were were Christ ones. these, These disciples would preach Jesus. They would tell about Jesus, who he was, the eternal son of God, who became a man. They would talk about what he accomplished on the cross, bearing our sins, taking our place, rising again. They would describe him and then, And then these pagan unbelievers would look at their lives and say, these are Christ ones. These, the Jews certainly wouldn't have given given them that name because Christ means Messiah. They rejected Jesus as a Messiah. Probably these pagan unbelievers who observed their lives and heard their message would have said, these are Christians. These are people who belong to Christ. I'm hearing about this person they're talking about. They look like them. They look like him. The pagans who heard the message about Christ, these unbelievers in Antioch, and saw these people who said they believed in him, said, these are Christ ones. These are Christians. They are not like us. They have different values, different motives. They have a different fuel for life. 
And that's what Christians are. We have different values, don't we? We're motivated by different things than unbelievers, aren't we? And we have a different fuel for life. And it centers on Christ, on him. We do have different values, don't we? We do have different motives, don't we? We do have a different news, don't we? We don't just get carried along with the news of this world, do we? We have a different hope, don't we? Well, these believers certainly did. It was very obvious. It was very obvious. So apparently Paul and Barnabas taught not only how to get someone saved through faith in Jesus Christ, but also how someone grows up and walks out life as a Christian or as a Christ one or as a follower of Christ makes me think of the last part of the Great Commission that we often, well, second to last part, that we often forget. We remember in, in, in Matthew 28, make, go make disciples of all nations. We remember that part. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We remember that part. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Teaching, sitting under teaching, listening to teaching. Every one of us is such an important, good teaching. Bible teaching is such an important part of our discipleship. Such an important part of us growing up and becoming ones of Christ or Christians. So it was through Paul's teaching ministry and the effect that it had on them that these disciples in Antioch were first called Christians. They were taught to be Christians. And the way the story ends here regarding this church in Antioch, the way that it unfolds for us shows the fruit of this name given to them, Christian. The last four verses, it tells us about some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of the prophets, named by name, Agabus, stands up and prophesies through the power of the Holy Spirit that there's going to be a a wide-scope famine, a, a famine that's going to be Worldwide. That's going to affect, of course, many people. And there was. AD 46, 47, there was a, a, there was a, a famine that affected, during the reign of uh, Emperor Claudius, there was a famine that affected much of the Roman Empire. And what does the church do? They don't hunker down. So we man, we better just hoard and keep our stuff and we need to make sure we got enough. They take up a collection for their poorer brothers and sisters in Judea, the area surrounding Jerusalem. Their poor bro- uh, Jewish brothers and sisters in Judea. That's what they did. They take up an offering and send it to their poor brothers and sisters. In other words, the gospel of God's Generous grace in Christ for these believers in Antioch. What did it do? It produced in them generosity. Here's what it says. 
Agabus told about this famine, verse 29. So the disciples determined. It's another strong word, isn't it? Kind of like resolute. They determined. Everyone according to his ability. Not beyond their ability, but according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did. They sent it with Paul and Barnabas. So in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They turned to the Lord. They were taught by Paul and Barnabas and lived out the implications of the gospel so that Barnabas saw the grace of God. And we see in our story, very, very practically, they gave generously to those who were in need. They were first called Christians. Taking this sentence just a slightly different way, we might also rightly observe another truth about these disciples. Not only were they the first ones that were called Christians, but I think we could also say that they were Christians first. In other words, before they were anything else, they were Christians. Before they were Jewish or Roman or Greek, or Arab, they were Christians. They were ones who belonged to Jesus. That was their fundamental identity. It wasn't anything else. They were Christians first. If they had not been Christians first, they may have been against sending their Jewish brothers help. They may have thought, well, we need to keep it for ourselves. We need to keep what we have for ourselves. We don't know how long this famine's going to last. We need to make sure we have enough for ourselves. Or they may have had, held some kind of anti-Semitic view and thought, send money to the Jews. Never. But these disciples were not Greeks or Romans or Arabs or Jews first. They were not citizens of Antioch first. They were not conservative or liberal or rich or poor or male or female or married or single first. They were Christians first. That's who they were. That's how, what, how they viewed themselves. Are you a Christian? Are you not the way that is popular, popularly defined in America? Are you a Christian? And are you a Christian first? First and foremost, before you are anything else, are you a Christian? The way that we've talked about it today, a Christ one. If people heard the story about Jesus, who he is, what he's accomplished, and then looked at your life, would they say, he, she, is a Christian? One who belongs to Christ. I can see it. I see the grace all over them. Not perfectly, but I see it. Are you a Christian first? 
Would they say, he is a Jesus man. She is a Christ woman. He is seeking to be like Christ. She longs to be like this Savior she loves. Is that what they would say about us? Are you a Christian first in your job? Are you a Christian first in your marriage as a husband or wife? Are you a Christian first as a parent, as a mom or a dad? Are you a Christian first in your approach to church life, the way you are committed to a covenant community? Are you a Christian first in your neighborhood with your neighbors? Are you a Christian first with your checkbook? Let me say it another way. Do you boast in Jesus? Is he your boast? Is Christ and the cross your boast? Is that what makes you want to sing? Is being a Christian the most important thing about you? Do you find your deepest joy in Jesus and what he has done for you? Now, if you say no, if you're like, I don't think so. But you want these things to be true. Jesus offers himself to you today. And like we talked about before, don't say, well, yeah, but you don't remember. I mean, gosh, I prayed the prayer like 16 years ago. If this isn't true of you, Jesus stands ready to receive you right now and be these things for you. Your greatest satisfaction and joy, your hope, the one who defines you. We sang about it. You're everything. Now, if you say, yes, these things are true of me, but, there's a but there. That might be a lot of us here. Yes, but. I go back to Barnabas' words. With resolute heart. Resolute heart. Remain true to the Lord. I'm reading a great book right now. If you, if you ever have interest in reading biography, read, read the C.T. Studd biography. It's amazing. C.T. Studd was a famous cricket player in England in the 1800s, like, like the best in the nation. He was wealthy, and he walked away from all of that and became a missionary. China, Africa, India. Anyways, I didn't mean to go on all that. It's a great book, though, so f- pick it up and read it. And... Um, there was a well-known minister in England who met with C.T. Studd. His name was F.B. Meyer. He was a prolific writer, pastor, evangelist. And F.B. Meyer shares his experience with C.T. Studd. And I'm just going to pick up like in the middle of it, okay? He writes this letter. And he says, F.B. Meyer says, Well, I inquired of Studd, how can I be like you? He replied, have you ever, C.T. Studd replied, have you ever given yourself to Christ for Christ to fill? Yes, I said, I have done so in a general way, but I don't know that I have done it particularly. 
He answered, you must do it particularly also. He answered, excuse me, uh, so I knelt down that night and thought I could give myself to Christ as easily as possible. I gave him the iron ring, the iron ring of my will. With all the keys of my life on it, except one little key that I kept back. And the master, Jesus, said, are they all here? I said, they are all there but one, the tiny the key of a tiny closet in my heart of which I must keep control. Yeah, right? He said, if you don't trust me in all, you don't trust me at all. I tried to make terms. This is what we do. This is what I do. I said, Lord, I will be so devoted in everything else. But I can't live without the contents of that closet. I believe that my whole life was just hovering in the balance. And if I had kept the key of that closet and mistrusted Christ, he would never have trusted me with the ministry of his blessed word. He seemed to be receding from me and I called him. I called him back and said, I am not willing. Listen to this. I am not willing, but I am willing to be made willing. Isn't that a great prayer? Lord, I'm not sure I'm willing, but I'm willing for you to make me willing. probably some people here thinking that today. And it seemed as though he came near and took that key out of my hand and went straight for the closet. I knew what he would find there and he knew too. Within a week from that time, he had cleared it right out. But he filled it with something so much better. Why, what a fool I was. He wanted to take away the sham jewels to give me the real ones. He just took away the thing which was eating out my life and instead gave me himself. Since then, I have reckoned on him to keep. But, and here's the point, full consecration is a necessary condition of any deep experience of his power, of his keeping power. Full consecration. Resolute heart. Remaining true to the Lord. Isn't that what a Christian is? One who gives himself or herself unreservedly to Christ. Because he gave himself unreservedly to us. That's what Barnabas urged. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose or with resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. You see, Jesus recedes from those who consistently resist his approach. He seems distant from those who consistently ignore his knocks at the door. But he comes near to those who open to him. And maybe the opening is just like F.B. Meyer. I am not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. Just crack our hearts open. 
And he comes in and he dines with those who open the door when he knocks. So, today, right now, this very moment, I want to urge you to give yourself unreservedly to the Lord. To be a Christian. To trust in Christ and what he's accomplished for you and to hold nothing back from him. To hold nothing back from him. There's a song, just the chorus. Just the chorus. It's it's an old song, but many of you have heard it. Lord, I give you my heart and I give you my soul and I live for you alone. Every breath I take and every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. Isn't that the prayer of a Christian? That's the prayer of a Christian. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.